The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by Hash House Agogo, the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, Brew City Brand Apparel, The Food Connection LV.com, and by Mr. Antenna. It's The Fake Show with Jim Tofty. Somebody sneak up behind him. Somebody end this now. What are you thinking about me? Would somebody take a lamp or a bottle or something and end this? You're a bad man. You're a very bad man. And you keep thinking bad thoughts about me. Wish it into the cornfield. Please, son, wish it into the cornfield. Please. That is a scene from the still scary Twilight Zone episode from the early 60s starring a young Bill Mooney who has a very impressive list of TV and film credits, including Perry Mason, The Fugitive, Bewitched, Babylon 5, and yes, of course, as Will Robinson on Lost in Space. Bill is also a very talented singer, songwriter, and recording artist. He's always fun to talk to, and I'm ringing him up right now in Los Angeles. Hello. Mr. Bill Moomy. This is Jim. This is Jim in Las Vegas. How you doing? I'm good. I'm real good. You and I are about the same age, Bill, and I, when I was a kid, the Twilight Zone episode that you did called The Good Life just scared the bejesus out of me, and I know it did everybody else. Did you just love playing that character? Well, sure. Who wouldn't want to be Anthony Fremont and read yeah. everyone's mind and was all-powerful? What, what little kid wouldn't want to be all-powerful? Did that uh, particular role, and I know that you were just a kid at the time, but did Rod Serling's writing really kind of spoil you for future roles? I mean, I knew that, you know, Rod Serling was a visionary genius. I had done the uh, <clears throat> the uh, long-distance call episode previously before. I did three of the old ones, and, and the first one I did, uh, I remember the, the it was one of the six Twilight Zones that were done on videotape, so it was shot more like a play. In the last act, there's a scene where the father picks up this toy telephone and talks to his dead mother to save the life of his son. And we had stopped production because uh, Rod Sterling wasn't happy with the way that scene was sounding. So we just stopped for about 45 minutes, and he rewrote that scene. And I can remember being on the set and him just... First of all, he was a very uh, light presence on the set. You know, sometimes when... A creator or executive producer comes onto a, a, a set, you know, everybody kind of gets uptight or, you know, snaps to attention. But I recall when Mr. Serling was on the set, everybody, all the heads of the various departments were all happy to see him and wanted to talk to him about future episodes. And he used to crack jokes a lot. And he was a very light presence, although, you know, you think of him as this moody, kind of brooding, dark guy. Yeah. Uh, but he was not like that person at all. He was very affable. Anyway, he, we stopped for a while, and he just rewrote that end scene. And it was like, even though I was a very little kid, it was obvious that he had made it instantly so much better. So I, I, I wasn't spoiled by his writing, but I was certainly aware of the fact that this guy was extremely special. And I was grateful that I got to uh, work with him for him three times. When it was resurrected, you did the sequel. Yeah, yeah. Carol Serling, his widow, um, and Buck Houghton, who had originally produced the series, uh, called me personally up at the house and, and said, "You know, they're making this movie, and you know, we would we would love you to just do a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, you know, thing in it." 
Um, I would have loved to have done something more substantial, but I was uh, very <laughs> flattered and happy to be a part of it, and uh, especially that they personally had asked me to do it. So, and then Spielberg came on the set, and you know, he came over. He was holding a puppy. <laughs> he was. He was holding a puppy. I think it was like a St. Charles Cavalier or a Britney Spaniel or something. It was a little red and white puppy, and he came over to me, and you know, he thanked me for being on the, the, the production told me that, you know, I had been a big inspiration to his work when he was a kid. It was very flattering. Oh, that's very, it yeah. It was just a one-day thing. It wasn't a big thing, but it was nice to be a part of it. You had so many great guest shots. Uh, did any of them stand out to you? I mean, Bewitched, The Fugitive, Perry Mason, that just must have been such a great time. You know, at my age now, I think you can see that stuff without an ego. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I could when I was, you know, younger but you know it's not like i sit around and watch myself but once right. in a while you're flipping the channels or somebody calls you up and you you say all right i'll check it out you know you i think you see it objectively and i was pretty happy with most of the performances i turned in as a kid there's a the one where i i uh played darren stevens uh, jr because i did two bewitched but one i i, I got to be darren yes and i thought i was really pro saw that not too long ago and i thought yeah, you know, I was doing Dick York pretty well. And I had such a big crush on Elizabeth Montgomery. Oh, yeah. Her husband, you know, was really something that I uh, I enjoyed a lot. That one I just saw kind of recently. That sticks in my mind. How stunning was Elizabeth Montgomery to see her in person like that? Well, it wasn't just her physicality, you know. It was her energy. It was her her sweetness and her humor and her lightness. And there was an inherent just sexual, you know, I, I, listen, within a three-year period, I worked opposite Shirley Jones, Connie Stevens, uh, Bridget Bardot, oh, man. Montgomery, Barbara Eaton. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I got to work opposite some very, very beautiful young starlets. And, uh, uh, but I probably had the big, well, I, I had crushes on all of them, actually. Yeah. But Elizabeth Montgomery reigned as a, as a very big crush of yeah. Playing yeah. her husband was really a treat. So you also do a film with Jimmy Stewart, and I, I just imagine that that had to be a really fun time for a kid like you. Um, well, Jimmy Stewart was the absolute best of the best. And I've worked with a lot of legends. But nobody was uh, uh, nobody was better, you know. Uh, he was just a natural, incredibly gifted actor. He uh, was an incredibly kind, relaxed, and non-affected man. He uh, was very generous to me. We spent a lot of time together kind of bonding when we weren't on camera, tossing baseballs back and forth and things like that. Um, his wife had been um, my Sunday school teacher when I was like five years old. Is that so, right? I mean, I, I, and actually, she's been my Sunday school teacher for like two years straight. I didn't have a relationship with him prior to Dear Bridget, but, um, you know, we spent about 12 weeks together, and uh, we stayed in like Christmas card contact and occasional phone calls uh, throughout his life. He was, the, like I said, he really was the best of the best. He, you know, he really showed me what you hope to, to, to be as a professional. You know, there was never any star attitude from him. There was never any 
uh, you know, I'm in my trailer, get me only if you're ready kind of a vibe. He was, uh, he was always right there with the crew. He was just a regular guy. He had great respect for everyone. And, uh, he was prepared and his performance was completely honest. And, uh, he was just the way you, you should be. And I'm assuming that your family was a strong, supportive presence. I know that a lot of child actors did very well and had great families. And you, obviously, you've had a long career, so that has to say something about your family. Yeah. First of all, I was an only child. Second of all, I was a very late-in-life child. My mother was 41 when I was born. My dad was 50. Uh, they had been mm. married for three or four, three years before I was born. So they came together kind of late in life. My father was a reasonably wealthy man. My mother had worked at 20th Century Fox Studios for 11 years as a secretary before I was born. So, And her father, Harry Gould, had been an agent in the 30s and 40s. Um, handled a lot of writers and directors, but Boris Karloff, he handled some actors, and Boris Karloff was his most, you know, resonant, that you would recall, uh, actor. He got in the, you know, Frankenstein audition and negotiated those deals for him. Wow. So he had passed away before I was born, my grandfather. But the point was, my mother's side of the family wasn't at all intimidated or impressed with show business. It was just, you know, it was L.A., it was, that was... The big business around here, her mother had been in it. I mean, her father had been in it, and my mother had worked, you know, behind the desk as a secretary. You know, that sounds wrong. <laughs> uh, you know, my mom had just worked on the other end of it, uh, you know, as a secretary for 11 years. And she just was comfortable with that world. So when I broke my leg at four years old and couldn't go run around on my little cul-de-sac street with all my friends for a couple months and was watching Zorro and Superman every day saying to my mother with a great genuine passion that's you know I want to do that I want to be on TV like Zorro or Superman and really meant it <laughs> and here's this little kid with red hair and freckles who's got a ton of energy so you know you can't escape your destiny I it just it just happened but they were supportive of it my father was like you know if he, if he really wants to check this out and you think it's a good idea as long as you go with him and he's having a good time, then, you know, you can check it out. And so we did. And how did you hear of or how did that role come to you of Will Robinson? Um, it came directly after uh, the film, during actually during the filming of uh, Dear Bridget. Dear Bridget was a 20th Century Fox film. Uh, Lost in Space was a 20th Century Fox pilot, you know, television project. Uh, I had been working really prolifically for five and a half years before Lost in Space. I kind of, I was working, you know, I was on everything in those days. Yeah. And uh, I didn't audition for the part or anything. Uh, Irwin Allen simply, you know, offered me the role. And up to that point, um, we hadn't really, when I say we, I mean my mother and my father and my agent, you know, we really hadn't wanted to commit me to a series because as an actor, which I really enjoyed being an actor, by the way, you know, I like it. It's, it came very natural to me, and I enjoyed doing it. It wasn't something that I didn't like. We had had such a great eclectic run, and this had a catalog of like, okay, now you're the sick guy, now you're the mean guy, now you're the angry guy, now you're the sweet guy, now you're the back in time cowboy guy, now yeah. you're the, you know what I mean? There was a great variety of roles and a great opportunity to work with all of these legendary people, be it. 
you know, Alfred Hitchcock or Rod Serling or Walt Disney or Jimmy Stewart or Lucille Ball or... Bill, it's interesting you bring that up. I just talked to, uh, just did an interview with a uh, documentary filmmaker, George Pappy, who just did the, the Green Girl documentary, which is all about actress Susan Oliver. Uh-huh. And she's someone who probably could have been on a series or been more of a movie star, but she just simply wanted to go from guest role to guest role. Right. And, yeah. And, and, and from, from a performer's perspective, from an uh, actor's perspective, that, that's great. You know, I, it, I, listen, I have, I have wonderful friends who grew up on television series being the, one, of, one of the kids, you know, and I, I, were, I looked up to those guys as a kid myself and I, they're great friends of mine. But I, I'm much happier having had several hundred different kind of episodic and film opportunities, uh, you know, before Lost in Space. But Lost in Space, being Will Robinson, was exactly what had motivated me as a four-year-old to want to get inside the television set. He was a superhero, you know? Yeah. I mean, he was everything I'd ever wanted to be. <laughs> he yeah. saved the day all the time. He had a laser gun. He used it. <laughs> he flew the ship. He programmed the robot. He stood up to Dr. Smith and got him out of trouble week after week after week. He had superhero wardrobe. I mean, who wouldn't want it to have been that guy? <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I remember the first season at least having a little more of a serious tone, and and I tell you that it almost seems like when Batman went on the air, other shows like Lost in Space or Man from Uncle kind of took on more of a campy feel. Absolutely, uh, I, I don't think there's anyone who doesn't reflect and say, you know, the first season of Lost in Space is light years the best. Um, you know, the, that black and white. 30 episodes that are black and white. They're, they're just gorgeous. I don't know if you've seen the I have. released Blu-ray, uh, the 50th anniversary Blu-ray with all sorts of cool bonus bits. But the show, production values and sets, before we even get into the you know music by John Williams and stuff, um, the show looks fantastic. And yeah, the, 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 the first batch of them are very adventure, serious family, pioneer family against the alien environments with a saboteur involved in the mix. You know, I mean, it's, it's a much different tone than the campy uh, season two and, the, and then the kind of melding of it all for season three. I mean, you look back on Lost in Space and you call it three seasons, but in today's world... You know, it'd be five or six seasons. Yes, shot thirty episodes, basically a season. Today, you know, if they do, if they do eight or nine, it's like a big deal. There's eighty-four episodes lost in space, and Man. they cover a lot of different style and territory. But you also have to remember, it's nineteen, the mid nineteen sixties. You're in a global cultural revolution. You, the Beatles have come along, and and everything has changed, and suddenly. You know, the president, Richard Nixon, is on laughing, going, sock it to me. <laughs> you know, Batman has created this big wave of, of color and camp and Andy Warhol. And, you know, it's just a very specific, brief time in our recent history that stands by itself so so strongly against all the other years before or after. You know, that mid-60s, <laughs> it's a very unique time in our culture globally and uh, Lost in Space just happens to fall right in the middle of it. And was there kind of a, a dividing line between those who liked Lost in Space and those who liked Star Trek? You'd have to talk to other people about that. I mean, yes, but I mean, that's just stupid. It's like saying, yeah. but you know what I mean? It's like saying, you know, I like the Rifleman, so I can't like Bonanza. 
right. like gun smoke, so I can't like uh, the, whatever, half-gun will travel. The fact is they are both science fiction shows that take place in the future exploring unknown space. However, you know, Lost in Space is a family show, and Star Trek is a military show. And they both had, you know, green girls, <laughs> and they both got <laughs> ridiculous from, I mean, really ridiculous from time to time, and they both got really, had some really cool TV science adventure stuff from time to time. The only thing I can say in terms of wearing a alma mater jacket is, you know, Lost in Space was first, and Star Trek would never have made it on the air if Lost in Space had flopped. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Lost in Space was the most expensive pilot ever produced in history at that time. And uh, we did more episodes than Star Trek. But the, <laughs> but the history, the history shows that Star Trek as a franchise has done a lot better than Lost in Space. I read that you and Mark Goddard, who played Don on the show, used to get into maybe a little bit of hijinks during the uh, during the breaks on the set. We had our moments. I I just was with Mark two weekends ago. I was with the whole cast two weekends ago, and and Friday I'm having lunch with Marta, Kristen, and Angela Cartwright and June Lockhart to uh, celebrate Jonathan Harris's the. Uh, the late Jonathan Harris's 101st birthday. Wow. So it really is one big dysfunctional family that, yeah. that, that does indeed hang together. But Mark has uh, got a great sense of humor. He was, you know, 30 years old, 29, 30 years old when we first started the show, and we had some pretty cookie times together. Uh, you know, I have to ask this question because what guy did not have a crush, our, you know, our age especially, on Angela Cartwright? Did you ever, at, during or after the show, get together in any way? Oh, yeah. We were a couple for a couple of years. Yeah. First loves, all that. I, wow. you know, I had to wait till I caught up to her in height. <laughs> and was a year and four months older than me, which is a, uh unbelievable, huge, gigantic difference. You're 12 and she's 14. Yes. <laughs> you're a 12-year-old goofball kid who hasn't whose voice hasn't even begun to change yet. And she's this 14-year-old turbo-hot, like, supermodel. Right. You've got to wait. <laughs> and I did. How did the book come about? You and Angela have this great new book called Lost and Found in Space. Tell me about it. Well, uh, I'm very proud of the book. Angela did a great... We've worked together creatively on several projects over the years. Um, we make a pretty good team. And, you know, this is the 50th anniversary. We had gone to, um, done, done some television promotion for the Blu-ray. I was a producer on the bonus bits for the Blu-ray, which has been, we started working on early in the year. And it, it was a pretty obvious reality that, you know, this is the 50th anniversary. We're going to be going from point A to point B. And, uh, Angela had, had released a, a beautiful book last year from, that was mostly photographs from the vaults of uh, wardrobe shots uh, at 20th Century Fox. And we were given access to all of the negatives um, shot during the entire production of Lost in Space. And there are some, you know, images that people have seen for 50 years, but for every one of those, there's probably 20 from the same session that were never seen. So I, it was my concept to say, well, let's find all the behind-the-scenes photographs, you know, the ones with the boom mic and the camera crew and the, and really talk about what it was like making the series using these, these photographs that are extremely rare or never seen before. And uh, Kevin Burns, 
who uh, years ago worked at Fox and now uh, basically controls the classic Irwin Allen properties, gave us full access to uh, the, the uh, images, which without that, we there would have been a book. And we put the book together in, gosh, four months. Uh, we, in a, a photograph can be you know, a catalyst to long dormant memories reopening. And, and, and it's, it's amazing because our brains are computers and all that stuff is really tucked in there. It's still filed away somewhere in the hard drives of our brains. But it gets so filled up with other things that, you know, it gets pushed into the back corridors and we forget about it. And we, it's very difficult sometimes to access that uh, by choice. But sometimes simply looking at an image will make you go, oh, my God, I remember her name. Oh, you, you, that was the day, and so-and-so. And, and it, yeah. seeing these photographs led to unlocking these long-forgotten memories that came rushing back to both of us. And what was so great was, you know, I would remember the water fight, and she'd go, oh, my God, I haven't thought of that in 48 years. <laughs> then she'd say, yeah, but remember the time you and Mark, and I'll go, yeah, yeah. And so uh, it was really a pleasure writing it collectively uh, and individually, you know, some thoughts are specifically hers, some thoughts are specifically mine, but then we would sit down together and put it all together. Uh, the images are beautiful. It's a 200-page book, and uh, yeah, I'm really proud of it. It, it. It's really just coming into the, you know, the reality of people having it in hand in the last couple of weeks, and we're hearing nothing but really good stuff about it. Does it seem like it's been 50 years to you? I mean, having lived through all of it? It's a really scary thing, you know. I mean, it's really, really, time is a bizarre river, and it's really scary because, no, you know, it doesn't seem like 50 years. And a perfect example of that is on the Blu-ray, the bonus material. There was a script that I had written in 1980, co-written in 1980, that was meant to be a movie of the week that resolved the castaway story of Lost in Space. I've heard about that. You know, that never got produced. Erwin Allen at the time didn't want to return to television. He was busy making, you know, huge features like The Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno. And he didn't want to go back to TV at that time. So the script lay dormant for 38 years. Uh, when we were meeting uh, with 20th Century Fox to discuss what kind of bonus bits could go on to the Blu-ray collection, uh, the, the old script was brought up. And, and initially... I thought, okay, you know, we can scan it. I'll give you the script, and you can scan it, and it'll just be there as a little bonus thing, and people can read it, because for the hardcore Lost in Space fans, you know, they've heard about it since 1980, and they've never read it. So I thought, okay, give it to them. They can have that as a bonus thing. But then, and I can't remember his name, but one of the executives at at 20th Century Fox said, oh, that's that's cheesy. Why don't we just do a nice table read with the cast? (laughs) You know, I'm like going... Well, if you can get them, <laughs> that would be much better. Which led to an eventual eight-camera live table read that incorporated the scores from the original series, some never-seen-before color B-roll stuff, some special effects. I mean, it became a really uh, hybrid form of entertainment because it is, it's a cross between a a radio play, a table read, and an episode. Right. You know? uh, and and for and speaking to the question of time and 50 years, to be sitting at a table with Mark Goddard reading Major Don West and Marta Christian reading Judy Robinson, Angela reading Penny, and me reading 
uh, Will Robinson with the robot there, uh, <laughs> augmented by an ancillary group of, of wonderful family members, you know, Guy Williams' son and daughter. Anyway, it was just great. And the thing about it was we fell into those characters like putting on a blue jean jacket that you've had in your closet for 50 years that you put it on it's so comfy it fits so great oh I love this jacket and it just feels so natural so no <laughs> man you realize a half a century you started this ride a half a century ago and then you're you're playing that character with your your compatriots again <laughs> it's a very weird feeling and time is uh, hard to figure out. You had such great chemistry with Jonathan Harris, who you had mentioned a little bit ago, and I had heard that he really had free reign in terms of rewriting his lines. You know, like I said, I'd worked with a lot of really uh, legendary people before Lost in Space, and I have worked with a lot of people since Lost in Space. A lot of producers, you know, they'll give actors a little leeway, you know, make yourself comfortable, you know, if you want to change this up a bit, you know, that's okay, as long as we get the, what's basically on the paper across, you can do that. Some are absolutely not, you can't add a, you can't add a well, you can't add a but, you can't add anything, it's got to be exactly as written on the Yeah. But right from the very beginning, Jonathan was given the nod of approval to tweak his dialogue, and a lot of people think that it was Jonathan Harris who personally turned the show of Lost in Space from an adventure ensemble family serious sci-fi show into this campy comedy. It's not true. What he did was he started to turn the character of Dr. Smith from a snarling saboteur into someone you liked to hate with bits of cowardice and with bits of comedy. But... It was the network, it was CBS, who had put the show on what was then known as The Family Hour. The show aired on Wednesday nights from 7.30 to 8.30, and that was The Family Hour. And after the first six or seven episodes had aired, which are most everybody's favorite in reflection, but after those had aired, they started getting quite a lot of mail that little kids were really scared. It was scaring little kids. And CBS said, nope, can't cannot scare little kids during the family hour. And they mandated that the show take a lighter tone, that the physicality between the parents get way backed off. June and Guy, June Lockhart and Guy Williams were a very were very representative of a true married couple in the early episodes of that show. They you know, I'm not trying to present it like it is today in television, but I mean you know, their arms were around each other. They kissed. They held hands. It was like a, you know, a real relationship in, in the family. And the network said, no, no, no. We don't want that. We don't, we don't want to scare any kids. We don't want that. And, uh, and you got to lighten it up. Well, I had no so idea. Really, it was a combination of Jonathan salvaging his character from someone who would have been a one-note villain, salvaging his character and, and adding that little bit of comedy and CBS saying, you know, you've got to lighten it up. And that's really why we... We, we changed. And then, also, uh, you can't deny the fact that Batman came along after our, I think it was our 16th or 17th episode, and became this very quick, big hit uh, with this campy approach. Um, so when the second season started and we switched from black and white to color, I think it was kind of like, a, if you can't beat them, join them, added right. it maybe. Right. But then again, uh, again, I have to say, without... <laughs> 
with that raw, raw, be true to your school thing is, you know, we were there after Batman was gone. And we were there before Batman started. So, you know, <laughs> it's funny how you, you know, it is funny how I hear myself kind of reminding everybody of that stuff. <laughs> well, it's true, though. And yeah, I imagine that finding out that it was going off the air had to be difficult for someone like you at your age at that time because you were having such a good time with it. It was, uh, it was very sad. Um, the reality is, whether you're five years old or whether you're, you know, 50 years old, you know going into it as an actor, you know going into a project, whether that's a film or an episodic or a series, you know that it's going to wrap and you're going to move on to something else. But every season, when we finished our initial episodes for that season, we were told we were picked up. We'll see you in you know, whatever it was, eight weeks, nine weeks, whatever our hiatus was. Um, and then after, you know, a couple of weeks, you'd get the paperwork and your agents would sign the deals and you'd be back. Uh, so when we finished the third season, it was announced, you know, we'll, we'll see you in eight weeks. We'll see you after hiatus. We'll be back for the fourth season. So having done this with like a family, with the cast and crew, for, you know, three years, everybody just said, okay, see you, see you, we're going to Hawaii for two weeks, what are you going to do? Uh, we're going over here, okay, all right, see you. You know, there was no hugs, there was no, this has been great, wow, this is, what a great run, oh my gosh, there's none of that. We just were told we'd be back, so we just got in our cars and went home that day. And then, and, and scripts had been ordered, you know, Erwin Allen had a, a couple I don't know how many, but he had a couple scripts already paid for and ordered and written for the fourth season. And uh, for whatever myriad of reasons that are hypothesized, uh, you know, we didn't. We did. We got canceled. Yeah. And uh, and I remember, <laughs> I remember being in the the front of my parents' house at the age of fourteen, right by our dining room, taking the phone from and, and my agent Howard telling me that uh, well. It's officially been canceled. We're not coming back. Mm. And I cried. I did. Yeah. I, I did. I cried. I, I, I uh, was very, very sad about that. You know, I was 10 when we started the show. And I was 14 when, we, when we, the show was canceled. And that, those are really formative years. And I love, loved and love those people. And I love those characters. You know, if, if you do something... Oh, God, I was watching, was watching Facebook, uh, something on Facebook yesterday... And I know these guys. They're nice people. I know almost all of them. But there was a, a clip of the Brady Bunch family hour. Do you yeah. know what that? <laughs> oh, yeah. In these bad jumpsuits, and they're all, like, singing horribly. <laughs> while like, yeah. There's, like, Esther Williams people swimming in the hula hoops and Florence Henderson. And Just... to me, that, that would be my biggest nightmare if I had... That was my legacy, you know, and, and I, I know those guys, and I like those guys, I do, and I don't, I don't, I'm not dissing any of them individually, but I would cringe, like, so heinously if that was my <laughs> thing. But, but, you know, I look at Lost in Space, and I see this little superhero who's smart and adventurous and polite, yet bold, and and I, I don't cringe at all. <laughs> no. So that, that guy, that's a cool guy, man, Danger Will Robinson, it's embedded in the the id of society, you know, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm proud of that. So I was very, I was very sad that it just kind of fizzled out like that. And I never saw Guy Williams again. Wow. I never saw 90% of the crew again. 
just fizzled away. And we'd interviewed June Lockhart uh, a couple of times in the past, and she's just fantastic. She must have been just great to work with. June is a brilliant woman. June has got more energy at 90 than I have. Uh, <laughs> she has uh, always been an inspiration. She's a rock. And, you know, I've, I've said this many times. People don't don't see it or they don't because they don't know her. But June is a rock and roll gal. <laughs> June is a rebellious rock and roll She's a rocker. That's you know, amazing. Because she played Lassie's mom and played you know, <laughs> Robinson's mom and played Petticoat Junction and stuff. That's She's an actress, but that's not who she is. You know, for years in the 80s, you know, I used, we used to go to lunch all the time and we still communicate relatively often. Like I said, I'm seeing her Friday. But uh, she used to carry a picture in her wallet of one guy and it was David Bowie. <laughs> no kidding. Right, yeah, and remember she went <laughs> she went out with that guy from Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, uh, Ted Neely? Time, you know, his hair was really long and she took me and Angela to the whiskey to see the Almond Brothers first band, the Hourglass. There's all these pictures of us hanging out with Dwayne Almond and Greg Almond. And- Wait a minute now, she dated Ted Neely from Jesus Christ Superstar? I think it was Ted Neely. He yeah. was the guy who was, you know, Jesus Christ I don't know. Yeah. You know, yeah, but, but, right. but yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to say she is a legit hardcore, bold rock and roll gal. She's wow, this you know apple pie conservative kind of farm gal calling for Timmy in the well. You know she's a she's a very very interesting <laughs> woman, and uh, she knows how to have a good time. She's just so smart. Now you and I, I think, had talked about this a few years ago. But as you grew into your uh, early twenties, you uh, had a role on on the movie Papillon with Steve McQueen, mm-hmm. and I, I think I remember you saying something about how when you were on set, Ellie McGraw was there because they were dating at the time or something. Oh, they were. Trust me, it was a John and Yoko thing. She didn't. He didn't. I mean, she was sh- she was his shadow. He wanted her tattooed to him. That's kind of the impression that I was, he was very possessive and in fact to the point where he told you to maybe be careful about how close you got to that situation. It's very true. <laughs> Papillon was a really, uh, Papillon was a really difficult and, and, um, dramatic production. You know, it wasn't a studio picture. It was an independent picture. No one had been paid the kind of money that McQueen and, and Dustin Hoffman were paid before that. It was a, and that's why it wasn't a studio picture, because the studios didn't want to say, okay, we're going to pay actors that kind of money. And I could write a book about Papillon. I really could. Uh, but like, it, there was just so many things that, that that happened on that set that were dramatic and weird and, and scary and, and odd, one thing after another. But but, but to address your story, I had a guitar with me, as I always do, and we were shooting in Spain and Jamaica, and uh, there were times when, like, when we went from Spain to Jamaica, they couldn't get the cameras out of, uh, but you know what I mean. Right. They couldn't, there was a couple of weeks where we couldn't shoot, and we'd gone from Spain to Jamaica, and we couldn't shoot because the cameras were impounded, and everybody was just sitting around waiting to do something. <laughs> But we were ordered not to go out into the sun. 
you know, you're in Spain, you're in Montego. I mean, you're in uh, Jamaica, you're in Montego Bay, but you're you can't go out into the sun because you're supposed to look like you've been chained to the bowels of this ship for right. months, and you don't have any power. You know, you got to look pale and, and, and sickly. So we couldn't go out. So uh, there was a lot of time spent inside, like the bar or the lobbies or wherever. You know, people were in various places. It's not like we were all in the same hotel, but but I had my guitar and Ally McGraw, really, who was very young and very nice and very sweet. Right. You know, she used to really like it, like that James Taylor Neil Young stuff. This is 1973. So I'm I'm sitting there. That I was in a band at the time that was an acoustic band, and that you know, I mean, I knew all that stuff perfectly. So you know, and Dustin Hoffman is an excellent piano player, excellent piano player, and you know, he'd play the piano, and I'd play the guitar, and we'd sit around and play Let It Be and The Long and Winding Road and stuff like that. And, and Ali McGraw really liked that singer songwriter folky stuff. So there was a lot of time while they were waiting to get the pounded cameras out. That I'd just be sitting around with Allie next to me and singing, you know, Fire and Rain or Heart of Gold or whatever. And uh, so one day, one night, it's, I don't know, sunset. One night, McQueen walks up to me. And I've been around him now for a month between the experiences in, in Spain, which started the production, and then Jamaica. I've been around him for a month. We're, we're pretty close. He, you know, he knows I've been working since he's been working. And uh, he hands me a red striped beer. And he goes, he nods, like, follow me. He gives me that, that head twist. Hands me a beer and, like, come here, follow me. So I do. And uh, he walks, takes me over to this. We're in the sand now. We're outside. We're in the sand. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks at me and he goes, "You're spending a lot of time with Allie." I go, "Yeah, she's great, and she loves the, the Neil Young stuff, man. She really likes that that stuff. Like, I like that too. You know, she likes that." And uh, so there's a long <laughs> pause, you know, and he's spending a lot of time. And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, she's great, great gal." And then he looks at me with those eyes of his, and he and he says very seriously. Don't fuck with my woman. <laughs> and, you know, when Steve McQueen looks at you and he's really serious and you're 19 years old and you weigh 120 pounds. Because <laughs> I weighed 120 pounds when I was 19 years old. And he's, look, you're Steve McQueen, who I've already seen be real Mr. Tough Guy more than once, mm -hmm. especially in Spain. I've personally seen stuff that made me uncomfortable. And and he's, he's not, he's, he doesn't threaten me, but he... Threatens me, <laughs> and I then go into this. You know, I'm sitting there and I'm going, no, 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 no. Listen, Steve, I've got a beautiful girlfriend in Laurel Canyon, and she's 26. And uh, no, no, I, she just likes the music, dude. No, 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 no. There's nothing going on. <laughs> and I'm I'm dancing as fast as I can, trying to reassure Steve McQueen that I'm not hitting on Ally McGraw. Oh my God. It was. Uh, it was it was a real moment. It was a real moment, and then we worked together for you know it was another month at least that we worked together. And uh, in fact, uh, I had a little Kodak Instamatic Super 8 movie camera with me. Those little gray boxes. And there's a scene in the film, you know, where I walk out and where I'm like this. I just I'm just crazed, and I just walk out into the water, and I get my head blown off. And um, so McQueen, he shot that for me on my little Super 8 camera. So I have somewhere, I've got some Super 8 home movies that McQueen shot. Wow. My head blown off. 
interesting little addition to that story is when I was 19 and in Jamaica shooting this thing, I was a scuba diver at the time. And I could hold my breath for a really long time, like, you know, a couple of minutes. You know, when you're 19, it's good. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so they had rigged this thing up where I had a little, like, turkey baster pump unit in the palm of my hand. And from that, there was a clear, like, aquarium tube that went up my sleeve, up the back behind my ear, and then there was a a mouse trap uh, with a little gunpowder in it that was triggered by a radio device from the special effects crew that snapped like a bullet it hit my head. So like a piece of my skull snapped open, which was this mousetrap thing. And then I was to float and pump with my hand underwater, pump this blood, you know, focus blood. That sounds uh, very dangerous to me. You're invulnerable. It, 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 and, and there's there's no punchline to that. But that it didn't hurt and everything was fine. Yeah. But I mean, they, I mean, I could, they put a little metal plate on your skull, then they put this mousetrap thing with hair on it, and, and anyway, wow. they, did it, they did it good. But the point was, we were in, where was that one shot? I think we were near Kingston for that, and we had all been warned, if you look at the, at, at the history of Jamaica, this was 1973, and we'd all been told, don't go out in Kingston, you know, it's really dangerous. And somebody had gotten shot, not from our crew, but somebody had gotten shot within a day or two while we were, uh, had arrived in this location, and it was it was a bit it was a bit creepy. Uh, so Franklin Schaffner, the director, you know, yells action, and I go out and I'm walking out, kind of like I'm dazed, and then they trigger this thing, and I float and I pump the thing. Well, when you're floating in the ocean, like you're dead, your ears are underwater. So I don't hear Franklin Schaffner going, cut, cut. I don't hear that. So I'm just floating with my scuba diver lungs, pumping this blood out of my head wound. <laughs> and Steve McQueen's shooting it on my little Kodak Instamatic Super 8 camera. But Dustin Hoffman, who I was, I was much closer to than Steve McQueen, yeah. Dustin Hoffman has this paranoid rush of, of adrenaline that maybe somebody really shot me because I'm sitting there pumping it for like two minutes. Wow. And he comes running out. <laughs> he goes running out into the ocean <laughs> if I was really hurt. <laughs> and it was just one story after another. It was one story after another. And I haven't talked to Dustin Hoffman in, you know, 42 years. He probably wouldn't even remember. But Man. I got really funny Dustin. Yeah, you really could write a book about Papillon, yeah, I, I guess. I really yeah. could. I, it was, it was a, a, a crazy film. And, and and Dalton Trumbo, who wrote the screenplay, was dying of cancer while we were making the movie. And we started that film without a script. We started the film really? just shooting the pages that he would send in every like week. So there was no real... <laughs> it wasn't like, here's page one and here's the end. And we just kept shooting stuff for a long time. And that's really why, actually, that there's very little of me in the final film but i mean i was there for a couple of months and uh they had to they probably had five hours of of movie they had to trim it down and say well what can we get rid of okay well let's chop mommy out uh which was also the the very (laughs) first time in my young acting life that i had gone into something and come out of it with a 
much different, you know, reality than what I had filmed. And I remember, I only saw the film once. I went to the uh, cast and crew screening with my girlfriend at the time at Sam Golden Studios, and I was like, what the fuck happened to my part? Wow. <laughs> where did I, where'd I go? And, you know, that's it, it's all fine and dandy. You know, the checks didn't bounce, and that's, that's just showbiz. But I remember at the time going, oh, wow. I got cut out. Now, also, it seems like that was around the time that Steve McQueen was not too happy with the way things were going anyway. He just didn't seem happy. And he, he seemed exhausted, like he had worked so so much that past decade, and just seemed like he had changed a bit, too. Well, he turned in a, a, a really impressive performance in that film. I thought, right. I thought that, that his, his, his performance was really, really good. And, and I'd gone in there... You know, completely enamored with Dustin um, because he, The Graduate's my favorite film. It was my favorite film then. It's still my favorite film, and I, yeah. I've always admired his work very much. And he was so easy to hang with. You know, he was he was really funny. He has a great sense of humor. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick, one more quick Papillon story. This was uh, the first day that we were actually shooting. We'd been in Spain, you know, for a couple of days and just getting things together. And then the first day we were shooting, we were out on this boat. And it's a scene where Dustin Hoffman and Steve McQueen and myself and, and an actor named Don, Don Gordon are at the, the rail of this boat looking out towards Devil's Island talking about what might happen when we get there. And that was the first day of shooting at the film. We're out at sea, and everybody was getting sick, you know, throwing up. It was just bouncing around. It was, it was, it was pretty disgusting. And But we had a lot of time, because, you know, movies aren't television shows, and, and this one had a big budget that never seemed to end. And anyway, it was, it was a long, long, long day to shoot probably, you know, two pages. But this was the first day. <laughs> and Dustin Hoffman starts to explain how he prepared for the role. And he's telling the three of us, the four, there's four of us there, and he's telling us, well, you know, like, first I studied French culture, and I, I phoned up on my French. <laughs> and, and, and then, you know, I, I, I got very familiar with the, uh, the money of the time, because, you know, his character was a counterfeiter, so he's like, so I really learned all of the French coins and the French money, and I knew what, I studied what, you know, threads were in them, and he goes on and on about this. And then he says, and I started dressing in clothes from that period, you know, so I would really get a connection to the French period. And uh, and he says, because I was such a, a, a counterfeiter, car, you know, making these uh, this money, I figured my eyes would go bad. So I, I created these super thick glasses. But in order to see, in order to see through these Coke bottle glasses that he was wearing, he had to wear contact lenses that balanced it out, <laughs> right? So, I mean, he really went for it. Right. I mean, he had worn the clothes, he had studied the language, he had listened, immersed himself in whatever it was, you know, Django Reinhardt, whatever it was. He had just completely immersed himself in the French culture of the time, the currency of the time he became an expert at. He was wearing the clothes, everything else. And he's in detail telling us how he prepared for the role, and that's what he shares with us. And I'll never forget this. McQueen looks at him out of the side of his eye, kind of nods a little bit, and then says... Mm-hmm. I read most of the book. <laughs> you could, just like Shazam, just like the Captain Marvel thing, you just felt this lightning bolt kind of go right between them. And you knew 
they were completely different camps of acting. Yes. And completely different camps of guys. They were just different guys. They were both movie stars. They were both committed to the to you know, doing the best they could do. But it was just so different. And uh and I'll never forget that. It was brilliant. Joe, I mean the way he said it, you know, I read most of it. <laughs> <laughs> and you just you just knew, man. Oh. Did they? And and with that said, did they pretty much get along throughout the shoot? Yes. Yeah. No. I they 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 got along. Okay. You know they did. There was nothing. There was no temper tantrums or stuff between them. There was just there was just uh, customs is what I was looking for the word by the way. Yep, yeah, you're right. I couldn't come out of customs. And that's, uh, I hate to go back and sound like an idiot, but the, it was, that's, that was bothering me. <laughs> it, was, it was customs, not taxes. They wouldn't let the camera equipment out of customs until somebody got paid off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's anyway, amazing. That's my pappy, those are my Papillon stories, so I, I guess I don't need to write the book. <laughs> <laughs> Being on a classic rock station uh, for several years, we you know, Barnes & Barnes were a staple on our show, and um, you know we would also carry Dr. Demento, so Fish Heads was huge. I started playing when I was 10, and I was pretty serious about it before I was 11. I was writing yeah. when I was 11. I mean, there's three or four episodes of Lost in Space, you know, where Will Robinson's playing and he's playing okay, you know, guitar. I, I was in a really prolific and uh, working band for six years, from 69 through in, until 75, that, uh, you know, was recording at record plant and opened up everywhere for Jon Stewart. A lot of a lot of big bands that we traveled with in those days, and, and that was a band called Redwood that uh, was a real serious band, and we all thought it was going to, you know, I actually gave up acting for a couple of years just to, just to give that a hundred percent, but uh, you know, whatever. That we didn't turn into the next Crosby, Stills, and Nash, as fate would have it. But uh, <laughs> but Barnes and Barnes came along in those years. It's just something Robert Hamer and I uh, did to release extra creative energy and to kind of be able to jam and do stupid stuff that reflected our love of like you know the Three Stooges or National Lampoon or right. uh, pre superhero uh, Marvel. Steve Ditko comics and R. Crumb and stuff. I mean, we would just get together with a little stereo tape recorder and, and you know, he'd play keyboards and I'd play guitar and we'd just uh, record these things kind of on the spot. Fishheads was, was one of those. And then uh, Robert became a big, big Dr. Demento radio show fan. You know, years went by and it was 1978, yeah, 1978 that we, uh, we recorded Fishheads. And uh, he wrote the chorus. Uh, which I have to give him most of the credit for that. He wrote the chorus and I wrote all the verses. I had to argue with him to do the chipmunk chorus voices, but I won. So, oh, good. But you know, it's weird. You never know what's going to resonate with people. You never, I mean, Barnes and Barnes have made nine albums. There's a lot of interesting music on those records, but we've made a really good amount of money off this show over the decades. And, you know, Homer Simpson saying it. It's been, it's been commercials for other projects. It's been in animated film festivals around the world. Rolling Stone called it. Uh, what is it? Till 57, I think 57 of 100 top videos ever made. Uh, MTV, you know, really put it in heavy rotation. It was on Saturday Night Live, and it just was one of those quirky things that has stuck in the 
consciousness of people and it's a crap up, right? I mean, I love yeah. that shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so do my kids. I mean, it does resonate through the generations. It's it's really fun and, and all that stuff was. I know that you still, you're out there playing with uh, with friends like Jerry Beckley and, and um, Vicki Peterson and stuff. I was Jerry yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's great. I'm well, so... I worked with America for many, many years, but I do not go out on the road with those guys anymore. But um, I used to. And, yeah. You know, I salute them wholeheartedly, but... I don't have the stamina to be a road warrior and just, you know, they're, they're gone from there. You know, here, here we are in the years. Uh, you've kind of worked. I mean, I've worked since I was five years old, right? You know, you work 50 some years. I think the point of that, besides pleasing yourself and, and being able to express yourself artistically and pleasing other people, hopefully, but the point of that is to be able to like, okay, now I'm back and racks in my house. I got my dogs. I got my guitars. You know, I can I can chill a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but those guys, you know, they have their nice places and everything, but they they're never there. I mean, I, I'm trying to finish a band album right now with John Cowsill and Vicky Peterson from Yeah. Wilson. Sure. We started a project over a year ago, and we've got. 12 tracks that are almost finished but John is the Beach Boys in the drum uh, is the Beach Boys drummer he has been for 14 years and here's Mike Love he's 75 years old those guys are on the road they're playing like 210 gigs this year they're on the road like 265 days I mean, he's home for a couple of days and then bam they're in Australia bam they're in London bam they're in some casino in you know, San Bernardino or Vegas or whatever. I mean, it's just non-stop plane, bus, hotel, bus. You know, I talked to uh, the guys from Chicago, and uh, they reminded me that they have toured every single year since 1967. I mean, it's just yeah, insane. Broke up. You know, they've been going <laughs> since '71. Uh, you know, Horse of No Name came out in '72, but before that, they were opening act for the Beach Boys and playing with you know. Yes, and all these bands over in Europe when they were just this little teenage trio from London. Um, but they've never stopped. And they play, America plays about 150 gigs a year, but, the, you know, they're gone so long, so much. I couldn't, I can't, I couldn't do it. I'm too much of a home guy. And it wears you out. You know, I did it. Well, I used to be in, I was in Sean Cassidy's band when he was a huge teen idol, and we traveled like, you know, a hard day's night. I mean, it was all first class. And because he had this squeaky clean kind of image, you know, we didn't get hassled anywhere, and we kind of had all this protection and everything, because he was selling 10 million records that year. But um, I was 24 when that was going on. Yeah. And it wore me out then. <laughs> I know good, good friends who've been doing it for, you know, 40-some years, and it's... It's a hard gig. Be careful what you wish for. It's pretty hard to go out there and, you know, be in the Beach Boys or America or Three Dog Night or something. Yeah, and you don't uh, realize what city you're in when you go up on stage. Yeah, and yeah. It's also, you know, it's, I mean, Jerry, for instance, is a very, very prolific songwriter. I mean, he writes all the time. It's very difficult to know that. 95% of what you're going to be performing to people is stuff you wrote when you were like 16 or 20. You've got like, man, I got all these new albums worth of good stuff I want you to hear. But now I go, you know, we used to laugh, we used to... I mean, you know, we got to play that that stuff, which which is great stuff. I mean, I'm not judging it as anything right. less than, than very cool. But, you know, it would be like if I had to just go out and play and do five episodes of The Twilight Zone or something every night. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
and, and here's Bill Mooney. He's going to do Anthony Fremont for you. You're a bad man. You're a very bad man. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. All the pain. Thank you. Right? Have a jack-in-the-box there with you. That, yeah, that would be. Is that, you know what I mean? You just had to kind of keep recycling. It's hard, especially when you're prolific. I'm so glad that uh, you put out the book of of uh, the pictorial thing with Angela uh, lost and found in space and and it's the 50th anniversary show so I encourage everybody to uh, pick up the Blu-ray as well no one will be disappointed with the Blu-ray the shows look fantastic they sound fantastic the bonus bits are worth the price alone and I agree you know the lost and found in space book is uh, it's a very positive thing and it, 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 it resonates I'm sure with anybody who watched the show or grew up with the show and you get to hear the real behind the scenes stories of how it all went down they're not dark stories they're good stories that's great stuff and and go to billmoomy.com i got lost there myself for for a couple hours because there's so much stuff you've got going on there and it was just fantastic to talk to you again it's always a lot of fun bill i appreciate it well thanks jim and uh onwards right that's all just keep moving forward that's it buddy here's to another 50 (laughs) (laughs) okay Okay, bud Thanks, Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. You just get the feeling that Bill never stopped having fun. The Lost and Found in Space book sounds great, as does the 50th anniversary Blu-ray. He just seemed to be right in the middle of everything that was cool, and what a surprise those Papillon stories were. Well, that's it for this episode of The Fake Show with Bill Moomy. We hope that you enjoyed it as much as we did. Make sure that you check out the latest on our Fake Show Facebook and Twitter pages. I'm Jim Tofty, and I'll see you next time. Take The Fake Show with you at thefakeshow.com, SoundCloud, and at iTunes.